Tonight I'm going to speak about funding of conservation and development in the Dominican Republic. So first I'm going to start by speaking briefly on how ideas of the environment and development were integrated in international discourse and then how they've become integrated on the, at the local level in both um, theory and in action. And I'm going to be looking specifically at biodiversity conservation programs that are executed by the Global Environment Facility, which I'll refer to as GEF. And I'm specifically looking at the activities of the GEF in the Dominican Republic, um, which is a part of the island of Hispaniola in the Caribbean basin. The idea of sustainable development came to prominence in the 1980s as a way of trying to join the ideas of environment and conservation, which had kind of filled up one stream of thinking, and de international development. And both of these ideas are, of course, really contested ideas. And so I can't go into all of the various vagaries of environment, uh, environmental protection and development. But sustainable development, as it is parsimoniously stated in the Brunhan Report, which is a 1987 Our Common Future or World Commission on Environment and Development Report, states that sustainable development is development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. So there's a lot going on in just this one simple statement. But the idea is that development, which previous to up to that point had generally been thought of in terms of industrialization, increasing the gross domestic product of the country, in terms of the kind of national development, shouldn't just be about the here and the now and the next year and the next five years. It should be about the next generation and about integrating more than just these kinds of indicators into what development was. And a lot of that also had to do with recognizing that environmental resources are finite and cannot go on forever. So this idea also comes from the developed and developing world, although primarily to start with the developed world, with ideas like lots of air pollution going on because of industrialization and the discovery of the ozone hole over Antarctica in the 1980s. And this really scared people, and I thought, well, we've got to start doing something different. At the same time, in terms of the development side of things, in the 1980s, I give the example of Chico Mendez, who was a rubber tapper in Acre, Brazil, in the Amazonian rainforest. And the World Bank wanted to build a big road through the Amazon. And um, they had the Brazilian government on board, they had a bunch of businesses on board, but the people who lived in that area, particularly the rubber tappers, said no. And a lot of the environmental organizations, like the World Wildlife Fund, uh, the WWF, um, International Union for the Conservation of Nature, they all said, no, this is not right. You're going to destroy all these people's lives. You're going to destroy all of this environment, all of this amazing biodiversity in nature. Stop. And they created this kind of international network um, and did stop this project for the most part. So Chico Mendes kind of represents, and he was actually assassinated by a bunch of um, pro-development forces in Brazil and became kind of a symbol of the international movement for autonomy at the local level, and also the idea that local peoples could be environmental actors, because he became part of this Save the Rainforest action group. Um, at the same time, while Chico Mendes was becoming part of the conservation network, um, there was a lot of pressure put on traditional conservationists to include local people. In um, the past, con uh, biodiversity conservation or nature conservation had been a method where an area was declared under law as being protected, and the, whether or not the, it was actually protected kind of depended on the resources of the 
country, but in theory it was a fines and fences method. So people who went into the park without being allowed to were fined, or they put fences up around parks. And this a lot of the time meant kicking out indigenous groups or kicking out people who had traditionally used that land. So this kind of became part of the human rights outcry and forced more traditional conservationists to see ideas like Chico Mendes and the environment, local people's networks as being valid ways of pursuing environmental conservation. So all of this kind of goes in and under the sustainable development framework, which I'm not going to go into because it's a really contested idea that people still don't agree what it means. So besides just the idea of sustainable development, some of the ideas that came to a head kind of in the late 80s and early 90s that made um, local participation in environment, on environmental protection included the rise of the ideas of biodiversity as opposed to just wilderness. Traditional conservation had been about nature and wilderness and untouched areas, and nature was seen as stable and um, not dynamic and not influenced by humans. And the idea of biodiversity, which I'm purifying as natural variability and variety among living organisms, the ecological complexes in which they occur, and the ways in which they interact with each other in the physical environment, um, biodiversity kind of places humans back in the framework as I define it and I understand it. Because biodiversity doesn't just occur within a park. Biodiversity occurs within a field where there's lots of plants and animals interacting. And it occurs over a broad geographic scale, not just within, you know, a natural a national park like Yellowstone or Yosemite. Also, going back to the development side of things, the idea of human development as opposed to just national development. And I'm really simple if I'm here and you're in my apartment giving me a look. But um, the idea of welfare and well-being are legitimate sites of development intervention. Um, and not just like GDP, nationalization, industrialization, um, ideas like this, that rural development mattered as well as just urban or industrial. Um, and also the ideas of indigenous versus expert knowledge. Traditionally in both, in both conservation and development, experts, you know, people who had been there, before, been there before, Westerners, would come in and intervene too because they had the science and they had the knowledge to make things better. But especially with the whole human rights outcry, such as over people being removed from their former homelands and parks and stuff like that, indigenous knowledge or the knowledge of people on the ground who have lived and accrued knowledge over generations was seen as a valid way to interpret nature and the world around people. So all of this kind of comes together, this whole conversation, in the site of the 1992 Rio conference. It was the, the World Conference on Environment Development held in 1992 in the developing world, which is also this kind of symbol of commitment on the part of the developed world that we're going to listen to people in the developing world, at least on the surface. And one of the there are two outcomes of the 1992 Rio Conference that I'm going to touch on, and those are the Convention on Biological Diversity and the Global Environment Facility. So the CBE recognizes that biodiversity is threatened and that it is a world threat because biodiversity is valuable, both in terms of its intrinsic value, its use value. You know, we get pharmaceutical compounds for biodiversity. We uh, exchange biodiversity. Our, all our agriculture derives from biodiversity. So it's threatened and it's important. Um, that not just parks are valid sites for biodiversity, but also um, places outside of parks and networks and mosaics of landscapes. 
Um, and also that non-traditional actors should be considered valid participants in this conversation. So there's a lot of talk about local participants and local knowledge. Um, and the Global Environment Facility also comes out of the Jeff. And it had started to be formed beforehand, and people were really unsure. It seems just kind of another world bank, developed world, trying to twist ideas onto the developing world. So um, the developed world actors in the World Bank and the UN all kind of came together to form the Jeff. But developing world actors and non-governmental organizations kind of stood there and said, no, we want to have a say, too. And from that, they've agreed that the Jeff only um, addresses the incremental costs of environmental preservation, namely conservation. Um, but, and it's not extra development funding, but it should recognize that developing countries can't do everything on their own, and that local actors, not just national actors, are valid. So the Jeff also works on climate change, ozone depletion, international waters, and persistent organic pollutants, but I'm just going to talk about conservation, um, biodiversity, and when I say that, I mean biodiversity. Um, so, Jeff, the Jeff compromise is that it's going to include local people, and how they kind of do that institutionally is by forming the Small Grants Program, which only funds non-governmental organizations, NGOs, and community-based organizations, CBOs. Um, the funding limit is 50,000 US dollars um, and has been since its founding in 1994. Um, and although the SGP originally says that only global benefits can be accrued by local interactions funded under SGP, gradually language surrounding um, development or recognizing economic benefits that need to be accrued by local actors who want to participate has entered into SGP publishings. I'm sorry, I'm banding, banding about a lot of acronyms. But. So the question that in looking at this whole contested history of how environment and development come together into one funding body and one uh, specific type of funding within that body led me to the question, where local groups participate in global programs for conservation, um, who are these groups? How do they participate and why? Um, and initially, how do the local goals that they relate relate to the global environment and to the Jeff's, um, what the Jeff is trying to do? So I've looked at the Dominican Republic in, uh, specifically, and there's lots of reasons why I'm not there, but it's a great place. I recommend it. I looked specifically at 162 biodiversity-focused projects. Um, all of which were funded between 1994 and 2008. Several of these were never completed, but I still looked at them in terms of the priorities that the, the in-country Jeff office were trying to fund. So who, what were they trying to fund? Where were they trying to fund it? And I also looked at what types of projects were funded. So specifically, I went through all of these projects and said, what is the main action taken by the group undertaking the project? Um, and from that, I found that sustainable agriculture Ecotourism and agroforestry were the three greatest focuses of both groups and the donor. And I think it's pretty clear from each of them that there's a strong economic component to these projects, and not all of the projects have that same focus. So I'll kind of go into that in a few more minutes. But uh, I also spoke, beyond just looking at the projects, I spoke to 20 groups who had, uh, over the entire funding period, received 36 projects. 
Um, and it was really interesting to me the diversity of the groups who were qualified as local. So there were two development NGOs that were, um, one was a national, one was a local development NGO, but development and economic progress were their main focuses, but they participated in this whole environment conversation. I had three religious NGOs, which I was surprised and very interested to see, although maybe I shouldn't have been so surprised since the Catholic Church has a very long history in the Dominican Republic. Um, and all three couched their participation in this program in terms of um, caring for the earth, you know, being, um, you know, God created everything, it's God's creation, and things like that. But they also mostly had very strong economic um, reasoning for participating because they were kind of outreach groups for poor communities and for Haitian immigrant groups. And so that, well, if they're going to help these people and they can get funding and help them do more, say, sustainable agriculture, it's going to be better for these groups. Um, there were six environmental NGOs, two of which were national NGOs and had very strong links with the international um, conservation um, conversation. And um, then I had nine community-based organizations, which vary a lot as well. Um, two of them were coffee cooperatives, and had, you know, their pure reason for being was to create, you know, add value to coffee and improve livelihoods. Um, I had a couple of environmental CBOs, um, and so I've listed three quick examples, and I think I can just go over them really quickly. Rio de Mahagua is a group of young men who have formed an organization to act as ecotourism guides to national monument. This group really interested me because historically these men had just kind of it, uh, sat around the entrance of the park waiting for people to show up and then they could charge them a couple of pesos and show them the mountain. But in the past two, three years, they've formed a, a CBO, they've gotten funding internationally, they have a Peace Corps volunteer, um, and they've become a very strong group. They've built a pavilion, they have a kitchen, they have tour groups coming by. But at the same time, they don't really see their participation as being environmental. They see themselves as the driving force of development, a non-industrializing, local-based development in the area. Um, SOEVA is the Ecological Science Society of Marijuana um, in the South, and it is primarily a, an ecological association. They were founded after an oil spill or a chemical spill off the coast of the southern tip of the country that led to all sorts of, you know, Exxon Valdez or something. And they decided, well, we're going to take a stand. So they're very local based, but they have very strong ecological um, impetus. And they're primarily professionals. These are not like farmers or you know, uneducated people. So they're primarily like doctors and business owners. Um, and Volta Grande is a group of agriculturalists, and they have land granted to them by the government that don't have a way to develop that land because there's no water on it. So they've tried to kind of go into different areas, such as they did a beekeeping project because they thought, well, bees will help us pollinate, they will get honey, we can sell it. But there was this problem with the least successful projects because they didn't have any base on which, economic base on which to build a bigger project. Um, and it's now, the both around group is now mostly old men who are no longer working their land. Um, and they were very disheartened. So this is just where I particularly was. That is part of Plata, where the Rio de Mahado group was. And that's a really big tourist area. This is where the capital city of San Domingo is. And I worked, um, that's where all the national groups are based. 
And this is Barona in the Venezia and Terranales, which is where most of the largest concentration of groups that I interviewed were. And it's also one of the poorest regions in the country. Uh, and that is the Haitian border. I spent much time on this, but I just wanted to show these are the types of projects, sustainable agriculture, agroforestry, ecotourism, clearly being a larger proportion of the projects than anyone else. Um, there's also things like beekeeping, reforestation, um, there's some water management projects which you wouldn't think would fall from your biodiversity, and microenterprise projects like handicrafts and things like that. Um, those three things also receive the most money. And marine resource management sneaks in and proves the third stop for average project funding, but ecotourism still gains the most on average as well. I've spoken a little bit about how these groups have different rationales, especially in terms of who the groups are. Um, and I found that the national groups had kind of a strict environmental view of why they were doing what they were doing. But most groups had saw environment and poverty and environmental development as being linked, especially in like a systems um, way, a systematic way of thinking of things. How their agriculture is based on how much rain they get, how what their soils are, and so they were going to try and improve the environment so that they can improve their agriculture, for example, or they're going to use the fact that they still have a forest to create an ecotourism project. Um, and there was some recognition that there might be intrinsic value in the environment or something like that, but to a large degree it was in terms of how they could use what they had or to improve what they had to improve their economic lot in life. The CBOs especially don't really use terms like biodiversity or conservation except in kind of like a reflective way, so they know that they're doing a biodiversity project because that's what the donor calls it, but they don't really know what biodiversity is per se. Um, as far as I could discern, um, it isn't about conservation or biodiversity, it's about that systematic provision of goods. And exactly what I said before, strict environmental, really only a national level idea. So I think that most projects fell into that economic environment connection. The strict environment, local people aren't really interested in this whole biodiversity strict environment definition. And that's not why they participate. So to some degree, there's an imposition of global categories on the activities of these groups. They're, they're not generally relevant to the groups who are executing these projects because they have bigger concerns. And that's not to say that they are not actually achieving goals that the donor would want them to. It's just that their values and their concerns aren't being recognized by this donor. And they do have a knowledge of their local environments, but it's not in terms of the scientific constructions that the donor would have them use or that the national groups use. So it doesn't matter that they're not speaking the same language to a degree. I would say that most of their activities improve upon the status quo environmentally by replanting forests or by improving water quality. And these things might have climate change related impacts, but in terms of actually biodiversity, focusing on a species or focusing on a particular type of ecosystem, no, they're not really biodiversity, but they do improve the status quo because they improve a larger system in which biodiversity lives. So bird species they're not focusing on, but if you plant more trees, the bird species will generally benefit. So in my general conclusion, Jeff's cornerstone is a for this SGP is of global action and global benefits. And it's a product of a long and contested conversation over what is sustainable development, what does it mean to participate, who has valid knowledge. 
But the local is not just one thing. It's a really diverse group of actors and interests, lots of different knowledge and relations and ways of understanding the world around them that isn't just boiled down to this is biodiversity or this is not biodiversity action. And I think that it's important that these donors or people who are interested in this area recognize that action not strictly defined by a category like biodiversity can still lead to clear and important outcomes for biodiversity, even if you don't call it that. So, and I think there's a value in a systems approach to the local that these farmers and rural participants especially propose.